All right. Uh, we started on Thursday talking about uh, the character of God. And uh, I, I want to follow that up with a further conversation about the character of God. And I hope you didn't miss in Psalm 103, as Helen was reading, that toward the end of the psalm, the response that should happen when you see the character of God is, praise the Lord. When, when you get to understand who God is, the only valid response is to praise Him. That's the only valid response. Uh, so this morning, as we walk through again, uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, uh, we want to be encouraged to understand who God is, and then that should evoke a response from us that is an attitude of praise and thanksgiving. <clears throat> While the pages of the Bible reveal a detailed portrait of the character of God, uh, you read about God through Scripture, and it's actually the story of His amazing effort to restore that which was lost. The more we dig into Scripture, the more we uncover new and beautiful truths about God's character. And the longer the time that we spend with Him and in His Word, the more we will understand and see His nature. <clears throat> you and I can spend a lifetime seeking after Him and still only scratch the surface. Now strangely, the Bible, as you notice when Moses wants to see God, the Bible says almost nothing about God's appearance. In fact, Moses wanted to see God, as we saw in Exodus 30, uh, 34, but rather than telling us what he saw, the Bible tells us what he heard. Exodus 34, 5-7 says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Even Moses had to live by faith, not by sight. What God did was preach a sermon about his character. When Moses wanted to see him, God preached a sermon about his character. This is who I am. And Jesus came later and said, if you, if you know me, you know the Father. Same principle. God proclaimed his name to Moses, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. And then he said, or explained, the meaning of that name by listing some of his characteristics. His compassion, his grace, his patience, his love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness. This is what God wanted Moses to see, the goodness of his divine nature. And this is what we need to see as well, you and I. Not so much to see what God looks like, although all of us are looking forward to seeing him face to face, but hearing what God has said about himself. In order to give Moses a fuller revelation of his goodness, he went on to explain that sacred name, and he talked about his characteristics. This is probably one of the most important verses in the Bible. We know it's important because it's quoted many, many times in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. In fact, the words that God first spoke to Moses became Israel's confession of faith, their working definition of God. So if somebody asks you what God is like, Go to Exodus 34 and read those verses. The Israelites would go back to what Moses heard from God. The Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Say, that's who God is. That's who he is. So this morning I want to uh, take a, a quick walk through some of these attributes. And there's six of them, so if you're watching your clock, you'll have an idea. 
Number one, God is compassionate. And these are a no descending order of priority. God is compassionate. King David prayed, but you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Sure sounds like Exodus 34. And you can find that in Psalm 86 and 103, the one that Helen read in Psalm 145. You can find it in many places. The prophet Joel said, Return to the Lord your God, for he is a gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Joel 2, verse 13. And Jonah, Jonah said the same thing when he complained about God's mercy and compassion. He was disappointed because he wanted God to strike down those Ninevites. And he said, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. How disappointing when I wanted you to strike them down. But every one of us here is here because of God's gracious compassion and love and long-suffering patience. God's very character is one of deep compassion and grace for his people. He is slow to anger, forgiving, and full of love. The Hebrew word for compassion, and excuse me for pulling up the Hebrew for a moment, but that word is the word, it's related to the word womb in the Hebrew, rachum. And you're wondering, what does womb have to do with it? Well, the idea of compassion is centered on a person's core, your gut. This word invites us to reflect on a mother's tender feelings for her vulnerable child. It portrays intense emotion and is sometimes translated deeply moved. Kind of like the deeply moved real mother in that dispute between the two mothers before Solomon about whose child it was. The deeply moved mother says, no, let her have it rather than cutting it in two because it was hers and she cared. She was deeply moved. She had compassion. More than emotion, the word compassion is also used to describe action. And most often it is used to describe God's action. Compassion is empathy in action. Remember that. James says it really well in his Epistle when he says, you shouldn't be saying when somebody's needy, go and be filled and not do anything about it. Compassion is empathy in action. So if you don't do anything, that's not actually compassion. It actually has action as part of it. Obviously, God was compelled by his compassion to act on behalf of the enslaved Israelites in Egypt. And Isaiah says it in chapter 49, verses 15 to 17. He says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she forget, I will never forget. So God says, This is the compassion of a mother with her newborn child. She'll never forget. But even if she would, I will never forget. God's compassion is not limited. It's never in question. In fact, God acted out His compassion by entering into the suffering of humanity. That's what the Incarnation is all about. Jesus is, is God's deep compassion made human. And His self-sacrifice on the cross for each one of us is His ultimate expression of compassion. There's action. 
And it's actually the same life of selfless compassion that Jesus calls us to, you and me. We are, we are to see the hurting around us and to respond with compassion, to participate in relieving suffering in the world. And Jesus says it in Luke chapter 6 when he says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So one of the lessons for us this morning is that if this is God, he's also expecting you and me to behave that way. Obviously, we'll never reach the bar. But, but that's the model. That's who we pattern our lives after. That's the target. So to be compassionate means more than just being empathetic or kind to someone. It goes much deeper. It literally means to suffer with. God knows every trouble and hard struggle that we walk through. He understands the pain of loss and he sees our hearts when we feel broken. And God reaches out to us with the comfort and care of a loving father. It's in his everlasting arms that you and I are held secure. And one day he promises to wipe away every tear because he is a compassionate God. Let that sink in. Secondly, God is gracious. And in some ways, I don't know if we can actually separate some of these characteristics because they are so woven together. He is gracious. The word here is kanum. I'm not a Jew, so I don't know if I pronounced it right. I did pass Hebrew, but barely. Leighton could probably help with that. Kanum means grace or favor. And it's often described as giving a gift. And, and grace is often undeserved. Kind of like Jacob, who had cheated his brother. And then he comes back 20 years later. And he asks his brother, may I find ken or kanum, grace, favor in your eyes? In other words, please don't kill me. Genesis 33, verse 8. And Jacob's brother gave him the favor he didn't deserve. Favor actually requires a generous spirit. But God shows more favor than anyone else. He rescued the Israelites from Egypt. And when Israel rebelled... Moses asked God to show undeserved favor to this rebellious people by giving them what they did not deserve, forgiveness and the promise to be with them. And if you're like me, it's so easy to point our fingers at the Israelites, how faithless they had all these miracles, they had everything, they, they turned their back on God. But look what you and I all have. And, and, and are we that much better? In the New Testament, the word is described with the Greek word charis, which is gift, gracious gift. Jesus in his incarnation is God's incredibly glorious and gracious charis, his gift to us. If mercy and compassion is not getting what we do deserve, damnation and judgment, then grace is getting what we don't deserve, Eternal life and forgiveness. Compassion is getting, not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. Tozer said, as mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt, so grace is his goodness directed toward human debt and demerit. 
It is by his grace that God imputes merit where none previously existed and declares no debt to be where no one had been before, where one had been before. <clears throat> one of the challenges, I remember, uh, I, I won't mention his name, but a, a young fellow when I was a, a teenager that I wanted to witness to. But he didn't smoke, drink, or dance. Now what am I going to do? <laughs> what an impoverished view. He, he's already a good person. The problem is that sometimes we think we're actually okay. Wow, what a delusion. I, I like um, General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, walking down the streets of London, walking down a back alley. He saw a drunk lying in the gutter and he said, but for the grace of God, there go I. Unless you and I have that attitude that without God's grace, we are lost, miserable. We're still kind of counting on our own merits to get somewhere. And I don't know about you, but my merits aren't going to get me anywhere. God is gracious. Rather than giving us what we deserve, he gives us what we don't deserve. The free gift of his salvation. But it has to be received, it has to be chosen, it has to be accepted. Because he won't foister it on you, he won't obligate you. Salvation is not based on any merit of our own, but only on God's desire to show mercy. Thirdly, we're halfway there. God is loving. He's slow to anger. And the word here is chesed. Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And that word chesed, his, his loving, his loyal love, his faithful love, he repeats it 26 times. His love is forever. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3, verse 1. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John 4, 7-8. That's similar to the idea of forgiveness. I, I almost kind of I stumble at that verse in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's almost like you're giving God permission not to forgive you if you're not forgiving. Ouch. Ouch. I don't know about you. Ouch. But the truth of the matter is that if I can't forgive you for something, that means I haven't understood how much I've already been forgiven. See, that's the connection. When I actually come to terms, like General Booth, and realize how much I've been forgiven, you can't do anything to me that's worse than what I've done to nail Jesus on the cross. So I should be able to forgive. If I understand how deeply I've been forgiven, I should be able to forgive. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it doesn't take time. I'm not saying it's automatic. But I'm saying that we should get to that point where we can forgive. So kind-hearted and caring is God that in Scriptures it says God is love. Not that He loves not that he occasionally feels that way. It says he is love. He describes love. The psalmist describes God as compassionate and gracious, gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness. The very character and essence of God is love. Incredible, lavish, unconditional love. 
And we said here the other day when we had the dads up here, that one of the things that you and I as dads, what we, what we should give to our kids is that unconditional love. We, we love them. Uh, not because of what they do or because of a response, but we owe it to them to continue to love them. He loves us more than you and I could ever imagine. It's not based on how good we are. Don't ever believe the lie that you are somehow unlovable. Or that you've gone too far in the wrong direction for God to ever care about you. That's Satan's lie. It's just not possible with our loving God. He reaches for us, he chases after us, he knows us by name, and he sent his only son to die on the cross for you and me. Citing Tozer again, Tozer writes, It is a strange and beautiful eccentricity of the free God that he has allowed his heart to be emotionally identified with men. Self-sufficient as he is, he wants our love and will not be satisfied till he gets it. Free as he is, he has let his heart be bound to us forever. God's love is active, drawing us to himself. His love is personal. He doesn't love humanity in some vague sense. He loves humans. He loves you and me. And he loves for us, and his love for us knows no beginning and no end. We have a gracious, compassionate, and long-suffering God who abounds in love and faithfulness. And, and that Hebrew word, chesed, is sometimes translated loving kindness. It refers specifically to the commitment God has made to his people in the covenant. And, and that word in the covenant is connected to his faithfulness, emet, which means truth, truthfulness, surely. In other words, his love is loyal love. It's not fickle. The point is that God always follows through on his love. His love is loyal and steadfast. You don't have to ask yourself, well, God maybe loved me yesterday, but tomorrow or today maybe not. God always follows through on his love. His love is loyal and steadfast. He never goes back on a promise. Once God promises his love, he keeps on loving. And his love is boundless, without measure, without degree. God says that he's slow to anger, a pretty vivid way to describe his patience. To say that God is slow to anger implies that there are times when he does get angry, when he responds to sin with holy wrath. That's part of his justice. But God is slow to anger. He's not capricious or volatile. Slow to anger does not present God as a frustrated deity who eventually loses patience and strikes out against those who have thwarted him. It rather acknowledges God's reluctance to act against his creation, even when it has rebelled against him. He waits long to give the sinner the opportunity to return in repentance. The Hebrew word combines love, generosity, enduring commitment. It's loyal love. It's loyal love. And it's not in response to our worth or deserving but an expression of God's character. And of course, Jesus in the incarnation is where we encounter God and his loyal love. 
When we experience God's loyal love, we are motivated to demonstrate this loyal love to others around us as well. <clears throat> Fourthly, I've already referred to this word, emet, God is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. Psalm 145, verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful, a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to the thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 7, 9. <clears throat> so part of God's character is his faithfulness. In times when we stumble and fall, it is immensely encouraging to know that God will never abandon us. Even when we are utterly unfaithful, God remains faithful. And he remains true because that is who he is. That's his character, to be faithful. The Bible reminds us over and over of God's faithfulness to his people. He is true and faithful to his word in a world that's constantly shifting and changing. You and I can trust him to do what he says he will do. We can trust his character. And if you walk away with nothing else this morning, I hope that you walk away with an understanding that God in his character is absolutely trustworthy. We can choose to believe. We can hold fast to his promises because God will never fail. A.W. Pink says, God is true. His word of promise is sure. In all his relations with his people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied upon. No one ever yet really trusted him in vain. We find this precious truth expressed almost everywhere in the scriptures. For his people need to know that faithfulness is an essential part of the divine character. This is the basis of our confidence in him. He's not a fickle God. Yes, we don't always understand or see how his plan is faithful. In our limited understanding and our finite minds, God's faithfulness might look to us a lot like abandonment at times. But Christians can take comfort in these moments by remembering these attributes of God. When we go through hard times, we know that God is nevertheless unchangingly faithful, good, and always with us. He is Emmet. Faithful, true, trustworthy, just and upright. And that's why he's often referred to as a rock. Immovable, constant. You can trust God to be true to his character. Fifthly, God is forgiving. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. One of the things that I've been mulling over the last week or so, kind of been on my mind, is, is the whole idea of repentance and confession. I've spent some time praying for revival and, and, and feeling strongly that whether it's a personal or corporate confession, that sometimes we, we have strayed away from this need to confess. And maybe we need to take that up and think about what that looks like. God is faithful to forgive as we come to him and seek his forgiveness. He forgives and cleanses our lives through the gift of Jesus Christ who took our sin on the cross so that we could live. Don't ever think that the pit you've dug is too deep for God to reach. He knows no limits. There are no barriers that could keep him away if you just call out to him for help. 
His mercy is big and his love and power to forgive are unimaginable. Patience and long-suffering are attributes of his character. He's slow to anger, dealing patiently with rebellious sinners. And the prolonging of his return is not an indication of slowness or hesitation on God's part, but of his patience. He doesn't want anyone to die without the opportunity to repent and to be saved and enter his family. <clears throat> the Hebrew word for forgiving, nasa, I wonder if nasa chose that word because it means to lift or to carry. I don't know, we'll have to do a little bit of Googling there, I guess. But that word means to, to lift. So, so the idea, the picture here is, is a picture of what God does with our sin. He takes it away. He lifts the burden of guilt right off of our shoulders. And, and some of us will go to the cross and we will leave our burdens at the cross. We'll pray and we'll repent. And then we'll say amen and we'll pick them all up again and we'll walk away. That's not what we're meant to do. We're meant to leave them at the cross because once we repent, God forgives and it's done. He takes our sins and carries them away. Sometimes we feel so weighed down with the guilt that we wonder whether there is any way that God will forgive us. We're tempted to feel that what we've done is so evil that we have fallen beyond the reach of His grace. But however we define what we have done, God is willing to forgive. Because He is a forgiving God and it's part of His character. Finally, God is just. The word here is mishpat, meaning he is morally right and fair. God is just. He's perfectly upright and fair in how he treats his creation. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you, therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Deuteronomy 32 4, The rock, his, word, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. Sometimes it's a bit of a battle to trust that God's ways are better, right? We may think He missed it or forgot us or He doesn't really care about our daily lives and the stuff that concerns us. Or we might actually, in the height of our arrogance, think that we know better somehow. Like God needs our help. Hmm. We get in a hurry and it's hard to wait for answers or we feel like we're wasting our time. But God never asks us to figure it all out on our own. He just asks us to trust Him, to recognize His leadership and sovereignty in our lives. And you've heard me from this pulpit say many times that there's two truths that you need to hold in tandem. God is sovereign. And he's a loving Heavenly Father. If he was only sovereign, you'd have to be afraid of him. If he was only loving, he'd be a teddy bear and he'd be useless to you. But he's loving, a loving Heavenly Father, and he's sovereign. And if you embed that in your heart and mind, you can go to sleep at night and be completely at peace. What does it mean that God is just? It means more than that he's simply fair. It means he always does what is right and good. For God to be just, it means that he's consistent, virtuous, innocent, and right. So I want to conclude with two applications, then I'll ask uh, Diana Jody to come up quickly. We'll see if there's some questions or comments to respond to. Number one, 
The foundation of your life should be on God and your understanding of who He is. That's where you start. You have to start there. The foundation of your life needs to be on who God is and your understanding of who He is. That's the anchor. If you don't have that anchor, you're going to be tossed about by the waves of life. It should be based on an unwavering confidence and trust in His compassion, His grace, His love, His faithfulness, His forgiveness, and His justice. Knowing who God is and who you are in relation to Him is the foundation that will sustain you no matter what comes your way. That's number one. Number two, given God's character, you and I are called as His followers to model these same characteristics and to grow in our likeness of Him. That's what that word sanctification means. See, see, He's not just rescuing us so that we can go to heaven one day. He's also rescuing us. It's, it's, in Spanish, it's si, pero todavía no. Yes, but not yet. We already are to be living the kingdom life in part. We're already to be gaining in likeness to Christ now, here. And that's also where confession and repentance comes in because we don't always get it right. But that's the process. This means that we are to be more and more compassionate, gracious, loving, faithful, forgiving, and just in our behavior to those around us. We're to be more like Jesus, reflecting him to others. Let's pray and then I'll ask uh, ladies to come up. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we, we've tried to declare what you're like and Obviously, we fall short in our understanding of who you are. You're so good. And we need you so desperately. We ask that as we reflect on you this morning and throughout this week, that our reflection on you will become an anchor in our lives that will give us stability and hope and trust and peace but also that it will encourage us and spurn us forward to becoming more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. May he be more and more a part of our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So how do we, this is like three blurbs, same person. So how do we witness to the person who believes they are good enough and the idea of God is simply a crutch for the weak? How do we witness to people who are doing fine without faith or Christianity? The next one's another thought, so those two first. How do we do that? How do we witness to people who think they are doing fine without Christianity when you think it's a crutch for the week. Hey, Jody. I feel like let's go in gently and talk about repentance. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, yeah, if, if I thought I was fine, I would hope that my brothers and sisters in Christ would very gently approach me and ask me, well, when is the last time you confessed? Right? Like, but that's within the faith community. What if right? it's somebody that doesn't ascribe to faith and they think they're okay. True. Like the guy that 
Ernie wanted to witness to. Right. He appeared to be a good guy. So how do you, when they don't have these outward sins that we judge, and he looks fine, because I could look fine, but do you see my heart? That I have envy, that I am jealous, that I, you know, there's so many things that I could do that are not right that we wouldn't see, so we think they're fine. So how do you witness to that person that isn't in the faith community and believes that they're okay, that what do they need Jesus for? He's a crutch for you because you're weak. Um, ask them if they can pray for you or if you can pray for them, like right there on the spot because you'll shock them and that isn't the purpose. But if someone asks you, if, can I pray for you? Like is your immediate answer to like your walls and your shutters slam up and down? Um, and then legitimately pray for them. They don't have to tell you what they're struggling with, but I think in that moment, the Holy Spirit would give you something to lead you to witness his spirit to them. Hmm. Uh, but uh, we're uh, afraid also. That's a, that's yeah. a bold move. Uh, another possibility is what I call attractional evangelism, uh, meaning that, that you live in such a way that the day comes when your coworker says, so what is it about you? something different about you. Now you have an opportunity to explain. That's now where First Peter, that verse, comes in. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. That kind of means that you have to have hope first, and then you have to be able to explain it. Uh, it does to me. Yep, I can... I, 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 okay. I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was working on construction in Winnipeg on a high-rise building uh, for Manitoba housing, and uh, there was a fellow in the crew that was what I call vocabulary challenged. Every other word started with F, and and I can still I'd never criticize him for it. Uh, he started swearing less. He started apologizing. And one day we were sitting up against the wall on the fourth floor having our lunch. He turned to me and says, "Ernie, so what is it about you?" If I would have attacked him right out of the gate. That opportunity would have never come. And now I had an opportunity to explain, not, not to say, well, I'm a believer, I'm saved, and you're bound for hell. No, but to say, I have this relationship with Jesus Christ that has turned my life around. Because now he sees something that he's drawn to, and I have the opportunity to explain it. I, I think, in part, it's how we carry ourselves. I think we right? talked about it several weeks, it could be months now, but how you, I believe it was you, said we actually need to start our day praying for the opportunity yep. to be that person. Yep. So let's start our day. Ask the Lord. Give me opportunity to be salt. Give me opportunity to be light. Because I don't want my saltiness to fade away. I don't want my light to go out. So we need to be proactive. Like, yep. like all those things, all those yep. things were action yep. words compaction, right? Like you need to act out your faith. Yep. yep. Well, and it doesn't, like, this week at work, I started this thing, I do this when I find myself in a negative mode, and I have a bunch of elastics on my wrist, and if I get caught up in grumbling at work or negative talk, I take one of the elastics and I put it on the other side. And so I was telling a coworker about this, and she goes, you only got four. 
I'd need the whole arm. And I says, no, I don't, I don't want to get past four. If I get past four, I got to go home. That's not, four is way too many times to be grumbling in one day. That says something about my heart and I need to fix it. And she goes, well, my goal, and she's not a believer, my goal is to get all four of off your wrist in one conversation. And I said, and my goal is going to turn you around. And so it's a witnessing thing. She doesn't know I'm doing it from a faith thing, but it is a way that I'm going to say, this is, this is how I'm going to live Jesus out at work. And her goal is to help me not to live like Jesus, and we're going to see who wins. <laughs> so you can pray the Spirit of God on me. But it isn't even witnessing, but it is. Because my life should look different. I should look markedly different at work. And if they don't see it, then I maybe need to put the whole armband of bands so that they see that, you know, it should look different how I live. And it shouldn't look like a preaching sermon. It's just a conversation. Actually, you could take that a little bit further. Oh, you can no. get rubber bands and then flitz yourself every time you fail. <laughs> Any more okay, comments or more. questions? We've got to um, keep going. God is just. But do you think sometimes he wants us believers to move in action to bring justice to the world? I struggle to see his justice in the sex human trafficking crisis seen worldwide. That, that's, a, that's a big question, and I don't think we're going to be able to unpack that here. But, it does, but I but, mean, the simple yes. question is, yes, yeah. he is a God of justice, and he wants yes. us to be part of justice. And, and, and what does and that look like? That's one of the challenges of, of creating a, a world and giving free will uh, and, and not intervening and forcing it to behave the way you want it to. 